Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. It's just weird out there. Mudslides and flooding and windstorms and little earthquakes. A dozen fires were still burning here and there in the Sierra Nevada. Until boom, 14 or 16 inches of rain in 24 hours. The passes suddenly closed due to heavy snow. Nobody knows what will happen next, and then it's hot again, murder weather. Like you could get away with anything right about now. People are too distracted, too run down, too baffled, or maybe just enjoying the weather. It's a beautiful thing to watch rain fall down after such a dry, dry time. To watch the wild storm scrub it all clean. Whatever you think of Los Angeles, after a good winter storm, it looks like a dream. Sparkling in the clean blue sky, that wall of transverse ranges suddenly right on top of you. Snow-topped and majestic. What is this, Switzerland all of a sudden? Or better yet, the eastern Sierra? That's what it's like in the southwest for the magic day or so right after a winter storm comes through. The air is crisp and clean with the light fragrance of the native sage and chaparral. Blown down from the mountains over the L.A. basin and finally funneled through Gorgonio Pass and into the desert. blast of fresh air, damp and chilly like we haven't known in a while, like anything's possible. Get in the car with somebody, why not? What else are you going to do with your time? Just a little errand. Nobody has to know. And then maybe you're in a situation where there's a crime ring. It started naturally, really. A weakness became apparent and some people who had little to lose decided to take advantage of the moment. Where desperation meets opportunity. That's where you'll find the action. And who benefits from putting your own self on the line, right? 
If somebody's rolling a flat screen out of Walmart while these other characters are rolling another dozen very loaded carts out of the parking lot, maybe there's some confusion about the receipts and maybe a baby's crying. And isn't everybody just so run down, etc.? Who says I gotta play Batman? I was just along for the ride. Get out of the house for a while and get some of that fresh, crisp air. Everybody knows what it's like to be afraid. But most of us know it's a little worse to be scared. Afraid can be like, I'm afraid I'm really not interested in reading your thousand-word text message. Or it can be something along the lines of being afraid of doing something you know is going to be difficult or unpleasant. Like going to the dentist or climbing up on the roof if you're not good with heights. But you've got to do it because your dumb cat's up there. Or your kid threw her favorite stuffed animal up there because she's possessed by a terrible spirit. Yet every suspicion escaped your attention. The momentary fright is a scare. You can scare somebody by jumping out from behind a door wearing a terrible mask or you can have a medical scare. Doctor says I should lay out these unfiltered since my heart attack scare. And then there's petrified. Now that's a funny way to describe a particular kind of fear, a current dread. You are not frantic and you aren't screaming. Instead, you are fixed in place as if a statue, petrified. Like the fossilized trees of the late Triassic. Some 225 million years ago. Preserved today at Petrified Forest National Park outside of Holbrook, Arizona. Ancient pine trees, ancient giants. You know, there's a small pueblo reconstructed but more or less historically accurate at Petrified Forest. They built their houses out of petrified trees. And then for reasons somewhat mysterious, but probably related to climate, the people just packed up and left, or they were all killed by monsters. There are monsters, now and then. Sometimes they settle inside a human body. Other times they whip up the necessary energy to have physical agency. For a little while, long enough. Petrified is a hell of a condition to find yourself in. Especially when you are young, when you are just a little kid. When my grandma, my Madi as we called her, moved into my family house in New Orleans after Grandpa died following that whole wild week of death swirls on the ceiling of their double shotgun down on North Rampart Street, well, I got moved to the back room. 
A patio room added to the back of the house by the previous owners. It jutted into the backyard. And at night, that yard faded under cover of a big old oak tree. bedroom to being in that big square patio room cut off from the rest of the house. Nobody would have even heard me scream. Which I was unable to do anyway. I never made a sound when it happened because I was frozen. How did my lungs and heart even function in such rigid terror? You see, I'd be trying to go to sleep so I could go to school the next day and be yelled at by the teachers for whatever they didn't like that day. Teachers had just about stopped routinely beating the kids at that point, and it just made them meaner. So I'd have the radio playing, the AM radio... New Orleans had wonderful DJs in those days, and they talked to you. Tell you little stories, talk about the weather or whatever, tell you where they stopped for dinner before the overnight shift. And they'd play the beautiful hit songs of the day, Roberta Flack and Bill Withers and Al Green. I'll Take You There and Tumbling Dice. Sammy Davis Jr. singing The Candyman. Little Michael Jackson singing about a magical pet rat. The OJs and the Shylights. But the radio was always quiet when I'd find myself once again looking into the darkness beyond the foot of the bed. That narrow twin bed sticking into the dark. First and always came the eyes. Red, fiery, like lava. Like the lava rocks got in the gas barbecue grill outside. As the eyes approached, slow and steady, the outlines of a face could be assumed or imagined. Who knows what else was really there? Beyond those menacing, unblinking eyes. Only once it had reached the bed and rose over the end of it like a balloon clearing an obstacle was its head more or less apparent. to say I tried to scream because it was no trying, really. 
The thought would be there, the only real thought, but no muscle action followed. The head was that of a devil once it was close enough to make out. An enormous head, twice the size of any I'd seen atop an adult's body. A greasy dark red reflecting whatever dim ambient light survived that darkness. Once I remember snapping out of the trance enough to sit upright and scooch back against the headboard, flat back, the one movement I could manage. But it just kept a coming. Until, inches away, I blacked out. Nightmares, that was the excuse. I tried once or twice to tell somebody in the morning, and if noticed at all, my report was dismissed as nightmares. Eventually, I came to believe it myself, even though there was no doubt of my being awake in my mind. I knew what dreams were. I knew what nightmares were. In dreams, I could fly. I had wild, surreal adventures. In nightmares, I was chased. Here in this miserable patio room that surely wasn't up to any kind of building code, too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter, I was just stuck.
during the summer, I was at this lunch for the writers who are featured in uh, Palm Springs Noir, the desert crime fiction collection that had just been published. And I heard something at that lunch that was so matter of fact, strange and unsettling that it's been in the back of my mind ever since. And this seems like a good time of year to bring that weird experience to the people who need it most. Desert Oracle radio listeners seeking dread on Halloween weekend. The person who told that story at the lunch was Todd Goldberg, the New York Times bestselling author of books including The Low Desert, Gangsterland, Gangster Nation, Living Dead Girl, etc. The man knows The Low Desert and its seedy history like the back of a dead mobster's hand. <laughs> Found somewhere east of Indio under the hood of a Lincoln. So Todd also hosts Open Book on Coachella FM with the author Maggie Downs. And he also had a really good Frank Sinatra and Palm Springs story, but that's for another time. The dread is what we seek. So welcome Todd Goldberg to Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It, uh, it's been a dream of mine to, to be coming through speakers next to you, spreading dread across the desert landscape. This story came up very casually. I didn't even hear the first couple of words because I was, I was talking to whoever was next to me, um, talking about the weather or something. Pretty hot down here, huh? And you started going into this tale I want to hear the 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 whole thing. So just just start start from the beginning, if you will. So the important thing to know um, is that when I was a kid, my siblings and I were all very into the Ouija board. Um, it was a big part of our life. You might be surprised to learn we did not have great parents. Like we we played around with the Ouija board for years and years and years, and some weird stuff happened when I was a kid when like my brother and sister were doing it stuff where like kids wouldn't come over to the house anymore, you know? And so from a very young age, I would, I'd watch my siblings play with the Ouija board and, and eventually I would get in there too. And I don't know if I believed it or not. Um, but you know, contextually, this is the 1970s, early 1980s. We watched a lot of in search of, you know, always in search of something. So, I started at a very young age to play around with a Ouija board by myself. And hey, hang on, just how do you do that? Well, <laughs> so theoretically, you're trying not to move it yourself by having any muscles in your body move. And I would ask questions out loud and the, you know, the, the mover would move around or I would think a question because I was trying to outwit the spirit world to make sure that it was it didn't need to speak English because even as a kid I was like well why does the spirit world only understand English shouldn't I be speaking in Hungarian or whatever and so sometimes I would think the stuff sometimes I would say it out loud and the little mover would move so I would play around with this a lot when I was you know eight nine ten eleven twelve years old and then I sort of lost it for a while um, when I got interested in girls and things of that nature but then I got a job, an after-school job, and I was working at an advertising agency in Palm Springs for a guy named Dell, who was a terrible human being. 
he's dead now. And I'm happy about that. Um, <laughs> so I worked for Sorry, Del. Del. <laughs> I worked for Dell and Betty, and Dell was a, a horrible guy. And I had to do all this filing, and I was in this basement of this advertising agency in Palm Springs, a crappy little advertising agency. And one day I just started making my own Ouija boards and doing it by myself. And like to while away the hours, I would play around by myself on a Ouija board. I was 17 years old at this point. This was 1988. So by by making a Ouija board, did you make it out of wood and paint or no, no, no. printer? Or? I just, I took a big piece of, um, I took the, so I took the cardboard off of a, a filing box, you know, like a banker's box. And I cut the sides off of it, and I just drew it with um, a marker on that. And then I made the the, the little pointer um, also out of just a folded piece of cardboard. I cut it into a triangle. And I would, you know, I'd ask questions like, "Does Marcy like me? You know, is just is Jan Schoenberger into me? You know, questions like that." I would be simple and stupid, and then I get more complex, and it would move around and answer questions and stuff. And I didn't know if it was real and I didn't really care at that point. I was just trying to spend some time. So there was one day, this was the summer. I remember it clearly. And I was, I was bored out of my mind. And so I took the Ouija board out and I started playing with it. I said, are there any spirits here? And the, the pointer began to move and it kept spelling out the same thing over and over and over again. It kept spelling out, you must call my wife. You must call my wife. You must call my wife. And it was freaking me out because I was like, okay, if I'm doing this myself, why would I be saying this? Like, why would I be pointing to this? And so then I started asking questions. I said, what's your name? And I said, my name is uh, David. And I said, you must call my wife. You must call my wife. And so finally I said, okay, well, what's, what's your phone number? And he spells out a phone number. Um, and I'm like, oh God, this is creeping me out. Because a, a weird thing had happened to me years ago when I was about 12. I had been playing around with this with a Ouija board at home by myself. And I kept saying, like, if you're a real spirit, what was your old phone number? And then right when it was about to spell out the phone number, because it was like two, four or five. And then it stopped and it said ring. And right when it said ring, my phone rang. And that scared me. Like, that was it. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. This is this is freaking me out. And just saying that just now made the hair on my arms go up. Um, I can remember it so clearly. I was sitting in my kitchen. And the dog was there. And the phone rang. And I was like, I'm out. That, I'm done. <laughs> so it spells out this phone number for me. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't know what to do about this. But I said, all right, I'm going to, what the hell? You know, I'm going to. I'm going to give it a shot. And so I pick up the phone and I call the number. And it was a Los Angeles number. And a woman answers the phone. And I said, I don't want to freak you out or anything. Um, this is probably very strange. But I've been playing with a Ouija board. And it kept saying, you must call my wife. You must call my wife. And so a man named David said this. And so I'm calling. And the woman on the other line of the phone said, why are you doing this to me? Why do you keep doing this to me? People keep calling me all day long saying they have messages from David. Why are you doing this to me? 
And I was like, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm I, The Ouija board told me to do this. I'm just doing what the Ouija board said. And she said, my husband has been dead for a year and this is cruel. Stop doing this to me. And she hung up the phone. And I just sat there and I was like, I can't play with this anymore. I'm not going to touch one of these things ever again for the rest of my life. said on the news or whatever how Halloween was finished because this was no time for a holiday that remembers the dead. The time when we pay tribute to our departed and remember the wheel of the year and the return of the spirits. Desert Oracle Radio is hitting the road and tickets are on sale now November 26th at Bridges in San Diego, the 27th in Tucson Club Congress, December 2, Stateside Theater in Austin. On the 4th at the Texas Theater in Dallas. Sunday the 5th at Paper Tiger in San Antonio. December 7 at the Galveston Artist Residency, a free performance. Wednesday, December 8 at Gaza Gaza in my hometown of New Orleans. December 11 at Growlers in Memphis. Sunday the 12th at Opolis in Norman, Oklahoma. Tuesday the 14th at the Jean Cocteau Cinema in Santa Fe. The 15th in Mesa, Arizona at the Nesbitt Elliott Playhouse. Friday, December 17th at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. Click events at desertoracle.com. From Amboy to Zizix and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio broadcasting from Joshua Tree. You know, I've got a Ouija board on the bookshelves here, and every now and then I glance at it and think, well, why not? But I think I'll just put that out of my mind. Thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for new soundscapes tonight. Thank you for listening. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>